Sometimes great art experiences a very difficult birth, and such traumas are only intensified when that great art heralds great change. On July the 2nd, 1877, when James Whistler unveiled his painting Nocturne in Black and Gold, The Falling Rocket, art critic John Ruskin accused him of flinging a pot of paint in the public's face. Almost 20 years later, in St. Petersburg, on October the 17th, 1896, Anton Chekhov premiered The Seagull, but the audience disliked the production so much that the lead actress, Vera Komisarshevskaya, lost her voice in fright. Barely a decade later, on October the 18th, 1904, Gustav Mahler premiered his Fifth Symphony in Köln, only for critics to mock his atrocious cacophonies. On May the 29th, 1913, the curtain was raised on Igor Stravinsky's ballet The Rites of Spring, and so offended was the Paris audience that by the end of the first act, they were in a state of near riot. And although published in Paris on February 2, 1922, James Joyce's Ulysses was banned in America for more than 10 years because the Manhattan District Attorney, in describing it as the work of a disordered mind, had ruled it obscene. Initially condemned, all those works are now considered masterpieces. The same goes for Bonnie and Clyde. Hey, what's your name anyhow? Clyde Barra. Hi, I'm Bonnie Parker. Pleased to meet you. Released 50 years ago today, on August the 13th, 1967, it is loosely based on the life and crimes of Bonnie Elizabeth Parker and Clyde Chestnut Barrow, who, in the early 1930s, robbed, kidnapped, shot and murdered 13 people on their way across Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Minnesota, Indiana, Arkansas, Iowa, Colorado, Mississippi, Illinois and Louisiana. That's 11 states in case you're not counting. Although never called this during their lifetimes, today they would be described as sociopathic serial killers. Nevertheless, in the course of their short and very violent lives, the duo secured not just notoriety, they became, for an even shorter time, folk heroes, rebelling against the fallout of the Great Depression. Written by David Newman and Robert Benton, starring Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty, produced by Beatty and directed by Arthur Penn, it was unleashed into the maelstrom of mid-60s America, a social climate you might think that would have been ripe for the picture. Yet its release was a disaster. Here is Penn talking with Charlie Rose in 2000, recalling how the heads of Warner Brothers reacted to first seeing it. Well, when we, we it, it was rather startling, as you can imagine. When, when we showed it to the people at the studio, they, they deeply disliked it. And so they, well, they then make a determination on how the film will be distributed and how much money will be spent on advertising. And that was quickly made, which was about a zero. Yes. You know, we got. I think we, they, they obligated the theater owner to run it for three days yeah, or something. Right, right. And then it was gone. Rather than giving the film a high-profile release in the early summer, Warners shoved it out in the dog days of August, with barely any publicity to support it. By then, the damage had long been done. The country's leading critics, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, New York Magazine's John Simon, and Dave Kaufman on Variety, had all damned it in the most exoriating fashion, with Newsweek's Joe Morgenstern labelling it a squalid shoot-em-up for the moron trade. Crowther had been the first to dismiss the film back in April after an early screening, and in early September, seeing the number of letters from the public defending the film, Crowther responded by writing two more reviews, further condemning the film, 
and the public for their ignorance. But then, something unheard of happened. Sensing he was wrong, Joe Morgenstern went back to watch the film, this time with the public, and realising he was wrong, he published a full retraction. I'm sorry to say, I consider that review grossly unfair and regrettably inaccurate. I'm sorrier to say that I wrote it. Morgenstern's change of mind helped change the studio's position, and by September, the film was re-released and hit number one at the American box office, where it stayed for almost two months, eventually earning more than $50 million. Adjusted to inflation today, that is $365 million. Used to be my place, but it's not anymore. Bank took it. Yes, sir, they moved us off. Now it belongs to them. Well, that's a pitiful shame. You're damn right, ma'am. Me and him put in the years here. Yes, sir. You all go right ahead. We just come by for a last look. That Bonnie and Clyde ever got made, let alone re-released, was some minor miracle. As Arthur Penn once said, it was a new film made with old money. It went into production just as the last remnants of the studio system were falling apart. What is more, the Hayes Code, which had for more than three decades determined the content and tone of Hollywood cinema, was replaced by the rating system, which allowed audiences to be separated into adults and minors. Content changed, and the treatment of content changed. Sexuality, nudity, profanity, violence and racism were all presented as never before. And while the critics have been slow to recognise the significance of Bunny and Clyde, audiences were so alive to its stirrings that it became the second highest grossing film of that calendar year. Its popularity encouraged the studios to embrace the social change rippling across the continent, and the following dozen years saw American screens flooded with such seminal pictures as Faces, The Wild Bunch, M.A.S.H., Clute, Deliverance, Badlands, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, Eraserhead, An Unmarried Woman, and Norma Ray. Another miracle about Bonnie and Clyde is that Newman and Benton had never written a script before. And in their naivety, or perhaps ambition, they had dared to mix elements that had hitherto been considered wholly incompatible. The novices jumbled together violence and comedy, realism and romanticism, to make a heady cocktail the likes of which American audiences had never experienced. Here is Arthur Penn again, this time an interview at the American Film Institute. What I became was the, the proponent of embedding it in a time and place. I remembered the depths of the Depression. I said to Benton and Newman, we've got to set this inside the Depression. If it's not embedded in the economic depression, it doesn't make sense. That's the system. I put in that scene with the farmer. The farmer's house has been foreclosed by the bank. The banks kept foreclosing on these mortgages to the point where the banks were bankrupt. And so the, the logic of the film began to emerge, which is resist the draft, resist the the uh, war in Vietnam, break out of these kind of constrictive mores. It just happened to be appropriate to that time. The truth is that Newman and Benton were heavily influenced by the French New Wave. 
films such as Jules Jim and Shoot the Pianist by Francois Truffaut and Breathless and Bond Power by Jean-Luc Godard had left them feeling disillusioned with American cinema. Hollywood lacked the energy, experimentation and self-reflexivity the Nouveau Vague offered and Newman and Benton sensed those elements were crucial in telling the story of young outlaws who became folk heroes at the time when cinema was reshaping American culture. Accordingly, Newman and Benton took some elements from another 1930s gangster, John Dillinger, and incorporated them into their story. Most specifically, when C.W. Moss, played by Michael J. Pollard, named Merla Loy as his favourite actress. That was something Dillinger had said, and also the way Buck Barrow, played by Gene Hackman, vaulted the counter in the bank. That was precisely what Dillinger did, because he had seen silent movie star Douglas Fairbanks do it in his Zorro pictures. All of which suggests that Bonnie and Clyde isn't only a gangster picture, but is also a picture about gangster pictures. In fact, after one of their bungle robberies, the gang hides out in a picture house and watches the musical Gold Diggers of 1983. Warren Beatty was all of 30 years old when he produced Bonnie and Clyde. But before that, he was considered nothing more than a matinee idol with limited acting ability. But more than anyone, it was Beatty who got the film made and got it made in the way it needed to be made. From purchasing the script, overseeing and oftentimes partaking in the endless rewrites, touting the script to Hollywood giants George Stevens and William Wyler, and then after they turned them down, bringing the script to Arthur Penn, then securing the cast, then bringing in a new writer, Robert Town, when he and the original writers were all tapped out, and then when the picture was done, persisting, pestering, and with Morgan Stern's review in hand, persuading Warner Brothers to re-release the picture. You listen to me, Miss Bonnet Parker, you listen to me. Now, how would you like to go walking in the dining room of the Dolphus Hotel in Dallas, wearing a nice silk dress and have everybody waiting on you? Do you like that? Does that seem like a lot to ask? That ain't enough for you. You got a right to that. Hey. When did you figure all that up? The minute I saw you. When it comes to discussing Bonnie and Clyde, you can never underestimate the influence of its legendary editor, Dee Dee Allen. In this one picture, Dee Dee Allen revolutionised editing in Hollywood. Here she is being interviewed in April 2006 by Michael Horton for the Los Angeles Final Cut Pro user group. I, I got into sound and it's the best thing that ever happened to me because sound is so much part of picture. Silence is part of picture. And there's a rhythm that has to do with sound, but the rhythm of sound and the rhythm of picture and sound, the rhythm of sound was such, and it was mechanically so easy for me that I could cut a scene silent and then track it afterwards. Very often the ear and the, and the visual were so connected that overlaps worked perfectly. Benton and Newman were huge fans of Truffaut and Godard, 
and what Dee Dee Allen did was extend their battery of new editing techniques. She used jump cuts and arresting sound patterns that were stylistically startling and dramatically effective. Her approach was to cut away from one shot before its action had finished and cut into the next shot after its action had started. Thus, she compacted the movement's energies into unpredictable, hectic rhythms. If you watch the scenes with the sound turned off, they appear to be cut so abruptly that they make for jarring viewing. But since Alan began as a sound editor, she so finely edited the tracks that with the sounds, the abbreviated images suddenly don't feel jumpy. Instead, they take on a relentless momentum. Not only that, Alan was the first editor to pull the sounds forward from the following scene into the current one. Which means, before you are finished watching the present event, you are already listening to the next. Or, to put it another way, the time and space of two events are crushed into the same frames. It's called, appropriately, bleeding the sound. And it sounds, well, it sounds simple, but until Alan showed how it could work, no one had even dared. You're born somewhere around East Texas, right? Yeah. You come from a big old family? Yeah. You went to school, of course, but you didn't take to it much because you was a lot smarter than everybody else, so you just up and quit one day. Now, when you were 16, you, 17, there was a guy who worked in a... In a Cement plant. Right, cement plant. And you, and you liked him because he thought you were just as nice as you could be. And you almost married that guy. But then you thought, no, you didn't think you would. So then you got you your job in a cafe. And now you wake up every morning and you hate it. You just hate it. You get on down there and you put on your white uniform. Pink. It's pink. Uh-huh. And them truck drivers come in there to eat your greasy burgers and they kid you and you kid them back. But they're stupid and dumb boys with the big old tattoos on them and you don't like it. They ask you for dates, and sometimes you go, but you mostly don't because all they're ever trying to do is get in your pants whether you want them to or not. So you go on home, and you sit in your room, and you think, now when and how am I ever going to get away from this? And now you know. Alan's career spanned six decades, and several world-class editors learned their art in her editing suite. For instance, Jerry Greenberg, who won an Oscar for The French Connection and earned further nominations for Apocalypse Now and Kramer vs. Kramer, and then later working with Brian De Palma on Dress to Kill, Scarface and The Untouchables. Also Richard Marks, who earned nominations for The Godfather Part II, As Good As It Gets, You've Got Mail and Julie and Julia. In addition, there is Stephen Rotter, who won an Academy Award for The Right Stuff. Then there is Craig McKay, with whom Alan shared credit and earned an Oscar nomination for Reds and who was later nominated on his own for The Silence of the Lambs. And finally, Susan E. Morse, who edited Woody Allen's films for over 20 years. Dee Dee Allen passed away in 2010 at the age of 86. She never received an Oscar, but her credits include The Hustler, Dog Day Afternoon, Reds, The Breakfast Club, The Addams Family and Wonder Boys. An incredibly wide variety of genres that showcased her immense versatility, Dee Dee Allen truly was one of cinema's greatest ever editors.